can offer us the promise of many fanciful things, but often it's simply an opportunity to refresh, whether it be our style or our story. Season 13 will continue to share the stories of creative people with a strong sense of style. However, this season I will turn the wheel to provide more offerings on how you can refresh your style and use it as a tool to share the story you want to tell. Today, I'm chatting with Camilla Sheeper, a refreshing figure formidably marrying circular fashion practices with true social impact. A self-proclaimed migrant matriarch, Camilla is the CEO of The Social Outfit, a charitable organisation whose mission is to empower refugee and new migrant women through employment and training in one fashion-forward movement. Camilla's story convinces us to think outside the square, by not only understanding the power of freedom in our own self-expression, but by refreshing our thinking around what real humanity in fashion can look and feel like. And while Camilla's colourful style is not without its sparkle, she's the guiding light in leading a multitude of women towards their own opportunities to shine, with enough glitter and bejeweled glamour to make the whole place shimmer. I hope you can sit back, relax and enjoy listening to Camilla's story. Camilla, thank you so much for inviting uh, me into the beautiful social outfit today. Uh, it's a store and organisation full of colour and life. <laughs> sure is. Thank you for coming. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Um, I, uh, we've obviously just had a chat where, I, you know, we've, you're, the, the name of the social outfit and the organisation has come up so many times in my podcast interviews and there's a lot of uh, connections between yeah. us. Uh, but it seems only fitting that after all of this time um, interviewing Amy Lowe and Aminata ladies that are on the board of the social outfit that I should interview you and tell the story of the CEO. <laughs> so... In, in my interviews, I like to start at the beginning. And given that The Social Outfit is um, an organisation that embraces cultural difference and uh, refugees and, and ladies from all walks of life, I want to go into your personal story and understanding your cultural background okay. and your ethnicity. So I know that you grew up in Italy. Yes. Uh, but your mother was Swedish. Yes. Correct. So yep. do you, can you just start off by giving me you know, an understanding of the cultural references you grew up with. Of course. All right. Um, so, yes, I was born in Perugia, which is a fairly small town in the middle of Italy. Just mm. picture olive trees uh, and Etruscan walls. Mm. Stunning. Yeah, idyllic. Um, but very provincial and mm. fairly close-minded. Um, my mum is Swedish, so she pushed a lot for us to learn English. And we spent a lot of our childhood in Sweden with our grandparents. Mm. And when I say we, I mean my sister and I. So it was interesting because we were Italian, grown up in Italy. So I did your all father my was study. Italian? Yes, my father was Italian. And did Italian. you grow up with your father? Yes. Yep. Mum yep. and dad together. Mum um, had come to Italy to learn Italian and, uh, you know, as a young Swede, got stuck with an Italian. Um, <laughs> and she is the one who still lives in Italy. Okay. Um, and Perugia is the place where the family goes back once a year for like a reunion on, on those hills eating, you know, tomatoes and mozzarella. And, and mm -hmm. 
and we all love it, but growing up, it felt really, really tight. Um, and I'll, all I knew is that I wanted to get away uh, yeah. because I, you know, I grew up with two languages, Italian and Swedish, mm. and learned and English fairly yeah. young <laughs> because mom was like, you know, you need to know English. Yeah. Um, traveled a lot um, and just knew that there were so many more ways of doing things and approaching mm. life than the Italian way that... I just wanted to experience. Um, so culturally, things. though, what did you identify with? If you did grow up kind of between two countries and with two different languages, and I imagine like all of those cultural references, the food, yeah. like the, the clothing, everything is quite different uh, very, between Sweden and Italy. They're not, no, they're not they're, European they're actually cities quite that cross opposite. Over. Like yeah. you're, you're shy and reserved or yeah. you're, you know, loud and, and family-oriented <laughs> and all of that. So. Yeah. It was interesting because when I was in Italy, I never felt Italian. But when I went to Sweden, I didn't feel Swedish. Mm. I always felt Italian and was treated as an Italian. So I think that was the issue as well. You just didn't feel at home um, anywhere because you just felt different no yeah, matter where like you went. You felt like the everywhere That's you went. That's right. And so when I, sorry, I ended up in New York at one point uh, in my mid-20s, I remember looking around and thinking, okay, Everybody's from everywhere. Nobody identifies with anything. I'm home. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand that feeling. Um, in terms of uh, that sense of um, curiosity for other cultures, you know, you, you've said you, you kind of wanted to get out. You knew that that was something within you. Um, what was the promotion of that within your household? So were you encouraged to learn outside of the framework that you lived in or was it more of a, a streak in you that had a thirst mm. that was individual to who you are? I think a bit of, a bit of both mm. probably. Definitely mum was very encouraging to explore and try things mm. and you know we and clearly up, she obviously it, was if she had moved to Italy to study Italian right. yeah you know she, she went there when her. she was 19 uh, she did marry very young she was 20 but but you know she had already traveled the world herself to some extent and I often think about my grandmother my grandmother who was born in 1917 in Norway you know very before the Second World War, did a bicycle tour and with her girlfriend and went on the bicycle all the way down to Italy. And there are photos of them with, you know, little shorts mm. up on the Alps. Mm. And I'm thinking that level of freedom mm. back then uh, in the late 30s was incredible. If I compared it to my culture in Italy where my girlfriends used to come to my house to get changed before going out, because if their father saw them wearing miniskirts, they wouldn't be allowed out. Yeah. But my household was the one where things were allowed. Mm. Um, my mum didn't really care too much, and she was like, you, you know, you, you're a young woman, you do what you want. Mm. Um, you wear what you want, you know, but um, it was definitely making us feel different um, growing up and making us want to just explore different cultures, which, yeah. which, which in a way, you know, I came to Australia on a tour when I was 18, backpacking around. Um, you know, I lived in New York and went to school there when I was 17. And then I did graduate in, I did study, I did do university in Italy because Perugia has a very good public 
university system, so right. we were encouraged to do it, to study there. Um, but when I uh, graduated at 25, I went to live in Kenya for one year. That yeah. was my first, my first gig. So you know that drive to anywhere, and I think just being open to opportunities and never kind of having that filter of saying, oh no, that's, I'm not gonna do that. So your mum was obviously open to that and kind of encouraged you and you were allowed to wear a mini skirt. How did your father um, kind of position you? And did he have that Italian, the stereotypical Italian gaze of a woman that you might've experienced in culturally? Um, Interestingly, dad was also quite a bit older than mum, mm. um, 16 years older, and obviously a very, very Italian upbringing. And coming from that point of view, um, I think what happens is that when he fell in love and married mum, he decided that she was going to take those decisions for the upbringings of the girls, and he was going to respect it. So he just kind of stood back and said, um, you know, I think, I, I think you know better mm. uh, to mum, so I'm not gonna come in with my... So she was your really strong influence in, in that way? Yeah, although I always feel dad was the rock in a way. He, right. he was there, he was there to support, he was there with the love, but mm. he, wouldn't, he wouldn't interfere. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of inspiration though, and especially self-expression, as a young woman and like a little girl even, did you get those style cues and those fashion cues from your mother? And did she take on a sense of Italian kind of culture in the way that she positioned herself living there? She absolutely didn't. She didn't? She was the only mum who She's got a strong I remember. Streak, huh? oh, I mean, it was so interesting, you know, yeah. when we had, I don't know, the parent-teacher things, etc. I was always very proud because my mum would come with a Fruit of the Loom t-shirt and jeans mm -hmm. and the other Italian ladies all looked so old and conservative and I thought my mum is really cool. So my mum did not conform to the Italian way. It was a problem for us growing up at one point because Italians put a lot of focus on what they wear mm. and it's a real status symbol. So mm -hmm. everybody knows you have to have those shoes because they are the expensive ones and you have to, and my mum would never allow us. She would always say, it's immoral. I'm not buying clothes for my children that are this expensive. Mm. You're gonna have my hand-me-downs. Um, you know, my grandmother made a lot of our clothes. It forced us to develop a very independent style mm. and be quite, risky with, with the outfits. I, I remember, I, I think I, I wrote uh, horse riding boots for about two years that my mum had found somewhere and I thought were the coolest thing, um, you know, going to school in horse, you know. Yeah. But that kind of made us also, it taught, you know, while it was hard, because I do remember crying fits of saying, why can't I have the Moncler and the Timberland that everyone else has? Why do I have to be the one that is not like the others? Yeah. But then you grow up and you think, actually, that was a good thing. Yeah. Uh, when, when do you think that really kicked in where you really started to take on board the independence of your own style? Oh, I think when I was at university and, you know, became a bit of a leader, we had university um, shutdowns and, you know, kind of occupation of the university for about a year. And, you know, I was always the one 
ready to have fun, but also kind of leading around a lot of those things and realizing that I was different and unique and that was a strength, not a weakness. So what are, what are kind of some of the outfits, describe some of the outfits you'd wear oh, at look, university? Back then, most of what I wore was, as I said, hand-me-downs, yeah. probably from my grandparents in Sweden mm. and, and my grandmother. Because vintage wouldn't anything. have been a thing, in like second-hand and vintage, I imagine. It wasn't a thing. It yeah. was very looked down upon. Yes. It's like you are poor and therefore you're buying secondhand clothes. Yeah. But I remember we would get on a train to get to Florence, which was about an hour and a half by train from Perugia. And there was a secondhand market there. And that's where I got all my coolest pieces oh. and was wearing. So was cool. Wearing so what, do you remember like a piece that you loved? Oh, there was a jacket that was a bit with a, with a zipper. Um, like a thin jacket and was um, reversible mm. and was black and white with a really funky print inside and yeah I remember yeah. I used to wear that to death um, <laughs> also because I had a complex about my hips so I used to you know wrap it around I mean yeah yeah um, and my sister's an artist so she also used to kind of paint fabrics and we make things so yeah, yeah. there was a lot of, of that going on. Uh, so you've talked about how, you know, you kind of felt outside of two cultures and not really within either of them. Um, and it's funny because this is a conversation that I've been having in a couple of my interviews recently and also just generally with socially. But I think um, one of the things that uh, feeling outside of something allows you is a freedom to explore. Uh, it allows you to go, like you said, to New York and embrace diversity because you're not stuck. You're not stuck in a system that only allows you to be one way. Um, and that's very much what you did, right? You left as soon as you could, you moved to Kenya, you moved to Norway, and then you moved to New York. Yes. Uh, and again, like your upbringing going from Sweden to Italy, not only are those three places culturally, like, you know, could they be any yeah. different culturally, but the sheer environments of each of those places is so very different that it would predicate your wardrobe to be quite diverse. But I'm curious to know, especially as you were starting to get your groove, you knew that you had like quite an independent style at university. You obviously had a very clear voice. What was the thread? Like, obviously you're gonna have to wear, you know, different types of jackets and what have you in different places. But what was the thread of style that took you from Kenya to Norway to New York? Well, what was the, how would you describe that piece of you that stayed constant through those uh, I moves? Would think that no matter what you needed, right? So in, 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 in Norway, I was working at the university. It was very, very cold, so you need big jackets. In New York, I was working at the UN, yeah. um, which was a challenge for me because, you, you know, you needed to look proper. I was yeah. working in the office of the Secretary General. You cannot go without wearing a jacket. Yeah. Uh, like, you have to. But I think the thread was always bring in some of your personality throughout. So mm. even if I was wearing a great suit, pants and jacket, I would wear a funky top underneath that had yeah. some color or something that I felt represents who I am or shows a little bit that I'm a little bit not exactly like everybody else. I'm not mm. conforming 100%. Mm. Um, you can play the role and, and fit in, but, but there is a spark. Yeah. 
<laughs> and you had to. You had oh. to. I do remember when I got my first job at the UN, I do remember mum saying, okay, here are my pearls, you know, you, mm. you, and, and for a few months wearing those, <laughs> those pearls because it's like, well, it is a highly conservative environment and you do want to, you know, you're a young new employee, you, you do need to, you know, but I couldn't do that for very long. Mm. Soon thereafter, the jewellery became you know, alternative, cheap yeah. stuff that I felt was more fun. Um, but did you feel, because obviously the amount of pressure to, to be working for the UN, which I believe was your dream job at the time, you know, and to be living in New York, a fashion capital of the world, like, did you, there's a lot of things going on there in terms of a pressure to um, represent something. Did you feel that... Um, you know, you had to get pulled in a certain direction. And did you ever use clothes as a tool to to your work? So, so you absolutely need to use clothes as a tool. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember when I went for my interview, the the purpose was look the part as much as you can. So I still remember what I was wearing for my first interview and how I had braided my hair and how I was wearing again, you know, the, the pearls because I needed to use my look to convince the interviewing panel that I would fit within that role in that organization. As the months and the year passed and I gained that confidence on knowing I'm actually good at my job, I work hard, I deserve respect for what I bring, mm. which goes way beyond what I look like. Like mm. I think the impression of what you look like is something that you need before anyone knows your value. Because mm. you know you're going to be judged. You know in an interview you're judged within the first 15 seconds by the person. It's, it's, it's just natural. And I've interviewed a lot of people and I try not to do it, but I know the first impression. Mm. But then when you know someone, you don't really see what they're wearing that much anymore. So that's when I, with the years starting, getting my confidence to being myself. Yeah, um, bringing that I remember when, um, when my um, son was born, um, I had three months of maternity leave. Mm. So I was home and my husband said, okay, I think we're gonna, we're gonna cut your hair and I'm gonna bleach it. I'm like, okay. So he thought, you know, you look great. Um, and so when, when Harper was three months old, I went back to the UN and I had, you know, hand cut, home yeah. cut, uh, hair cut, um, completely, completely bleached, which was, you know, Shocking. people were yeah. looking at me. Yeah. Um, the Undersecretary General from Pakistan at one point actually did make a comment of saying, okay, fair enough, you've, you've done this, but could you at least, you know, make sure to color your roots. And I said, no, I really like the contrast of the dark roots. Yeah, and, the, yeah. and, and, and so I pulled it off, yeah. but it was, I had already been there for years and people knew me and knew the value of my work. Yeah. Um, so I felt like my individuality could come out. Yeah, you, I've got two questions in my mind. Um, do you still use the, that idea that clothes can be a tool you know, if, if first impressions do count, uh, do you still use clothes as a tool for uh, negotiations? I think I do, um, but 
probably um, in a less conscious way now. Mm. Uh, also because I'm, I think I'm at a point in my life where I, where I do less of that negotiation. I am starting now, I think, uh, more than ever to have fun with my clothes. Mm. Um, you can see that too. Yeah. You're just looking at you, it looks fun and, yeah. and playful and colourful. Uh, and one of the things I've heard you say is um, it, kind of as a message to other women, as a bit of advice, is to let go of the idea of imposter syndrome. I'm wondering if you ever felt that as a young woman oh. working at the UN and how um, you tackled it. If you I could. always felt that. Um, and I remember when I first read the concept, it came out some years ago that I, that I came across it. I'm like, I never knew there was such a thing, you know, and, and then realize how pretty much everybody suffers from it. Mm. Um, constantly, constantly thinking, you know, they're going to find out. They're going to find <laughs> out sooner or later that I'm not all of this, that my French isn't as good as I've said mm. um, it was, or that I'm... And I think we all will deal with part of us in that and I think ultimately it's their self-doubt but I do also think that it forces us to do better and it's not necessarily a bad thing so when I speak in public for example which I've done a number of times I'm terrified each time and I think oh I'm not good enough for it but that actually pushes me to rehearse, to prepare, to think about it, which means that when I do go on that stage, it's good. And mm. I'm reinforced every time by people saying I'm, that was amazing. Mm. That doesn't mean next time I'm still feeling, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm not that person, I'm not good. But so somehow yeah. I think we want to think about it as a tool rather than, you know, Stopping an obstacle. Us. Yeah. And is that what you lent into? I mean, you're in a role where you're literally negotiating billions, millions and billions of dollars and, and you weren't, um, you know, like you were still a, a young woman in a world where young women aren't perceived to have that level of power and influence. Uh, is that kind of what you learnt? Like how did, I guess I'm wanting to know, how did you push through those hard parts or where you possibly felt like, oh, I don't think I can do this. How, what, what, can you, what advice can you impart on other women listening about the strength and the guts that you had to, to push through? Yeah, um, I think it's, it's, it's all about, you know, just realising that everyone else has those doubts. Even when you meet with the president, you know, I have been, say, for example, in the General Assembly room, uh, one of my early jobs was to escort um, presidents and heads of state, heads of state and heads of government from behind. When you look at the General Assembly Hall, when um, they do the big speeches, they are on a podium and it's gold behind. Well, behind all of that gold is actually a room. It's the room 100. It's like this secret room where the presidents are taken mm -hmm. just before they come out and do that speech and I have seen those presidents and heads of state mm. and how they feel before going out and giving those speech uh, the speeches and they're nervous as well 
and just realising that everybody's pretty much in the same boat. You studied anthropology, didn't yes. you? That must have been like the best anthropological <laughs> kind of observation, huh? Just like sitting there watching right. the behaviours of them preparing. That, like, you know, and all of that behind the scenes and how... Um, and observing how people treat other people when they're under stress um, and all of that. But yes, yeah, so then you realize, okay, well, I have always been incredibly driven by the end goal uh, of what I've done um, in my life. And my end goal, and not because I'm better than anyone, but just because of the way I've been built, has always been, okay, I wanna try and make the world a better place and wanna try and do something good that's gonna give me what I need, satisfaction. So it's still a selfish thing, but I need to feel I'm impacting in a positive way. I've never been driven by finances, although, you know, in New York, my work at the UN was important because the rent was fairly high. <laughs> yeah, um, and my husband, then partner, um, was a musician, so not much money was coming in from that side uh, of things. But I think, you know, being driven by that, knowing that if I... If this relationship with Bill Gates works out, we could leverage so much funds for the work of UNICEF in Somalia or the work of uh, UNAIDS in the Philippines, you know, wh whatever it might be, then you're like, okay, I'm just gonna do my best. Are you nervous? Are you doubting yourself every time? I mean, I used to write you know, talking notes, speaking notes for the Secretary General for some meetings, etc. And I used to sit there, oh my God, he's going to hate it, you know. And sometimes they come back, sometimes they go, but, you know, it's just it's just the way they, that it is. You, you just do it. Where do you think you got the drive for wanting to make a social difference? Where do you think that that actually came from in you? And was it, or do you only ever remember having it? I think I was born with it. I think it was always like that. It's not something, you know, my parents were honest, hardworking people, but not really in, you know, they were just going to work every day. That's that's, that's all I remember. Um, my sister's an artist. My grandparents um, in Sweden were artists. Um, my grandmother in Italy was a seamstress. Um, yeah. But there wasn't any of, of, of this, but I think, what happened with me is that traveling and perhaps in particular my experience um, in Africa and, and in, in Kenya and seeing how some people were living just, you know, I just, I like people and, and, and I like people of different backgrounds and different cultures and I, and I think people should be given equal opportunities. Mm. Um, so you eventually left the UN and um, Correct me if I've gotten this wrong. You founded uh, an organisation called the um, Institute for Economics and Peace. So when I was in New York, two young children under five, full-time UN job, um, musician husband, fifth floor, <laughs> no elevator, dog. Where I mean, were you in New York? Were, uh, in the Lower East Side. Oh, I lived in the Lower East oh, Side. Right. Whereabouts were Clinton you? Clinton Street. Ah, oh, right. I was on Ludlow. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, just, so, oh, my God. Literally. So I was on Clinton between Rivington and Delancey. My <laughs> husband's recording studio was on Orchard Street yeah. in one of those, you know, when you open up the pavement yes, and yep. you go down in I one do. of those basements. <laughs> and I used to take the bus every morning, drop off the kids at daycare and then continue okay. going up to, um, to the yard. It was a lot. It was 
a lot. It was intense. There was no family around. Um, and during those years, I met a large philanthropist from Australia who was interested in peace, in peace building. And I thought a lot of his thinking, he was a big businessman, um, no background in international development or peace, but very interested in trying to rethink how the international community is looking at the problem of violence and conflict mm. and putting an economic angle to that and actually putting a measurement to that. And he asked me to come to Australia for a year to help him set up this initiative. It was and called the Global Peace Index. You had worked with Kofi Annan at the UN, right? Who who had retired, and, um, but but operated on that principle. Oh yes, yeah. yes, and was so that's how I met Steve. You know, Coffee is the one who opened up the UN to new thinking, to mm. the private sector, to approaching things differently. Because it wasn't just about get the money of the private sector. It was yeah. a lot about how do we work with business people, corporations, etc., to solve some of those problems. Because obviously, what we've done so far hasn't been too successful, and we yeah. also know that businesses and companies hold so much of the economies. Mm. Um, and also social influence, right? That's right. Yeah. In all, in all of those various fields. So um, I decided to come over for a year. I took a year of sabbatical from the UN, um, came to Sydney to help set up this initiative, which then became the Institute for Economics and Peace. Mm. Um, we set up five offices around the world. It became one of the biggest think tanks on peace building in the world. It's still existing. Um, I ended up essentially resigning from the UN um, and staying because I think the quality of life, uh, the education, I was always a little bit skeptical about raising American kids and, you know, they mm. were going to be New Yorkers. I mean, my daughter at four was hailing cabs down the street. I thought, that's <laughs> not great. <laughs> so, you know, coming to Sydney was, I mean, you know, the beaches, the nature was just awesome yeah. um, for us. I ended up working there for 10 years. Right. What did you think when you came to Australia, given that you found your your upbringing kind of parochial. Uh, did you do you think that about Sydney at all after having lived in New York working for the UN? My my impression of Sydney and then the reality I think were quite different. Mm. My impression of Sydney was that it was a Scandinavia in the south. They were super open-minded, super fun, uh, incredibly multicultural, fantastic food, which which remains the case. But I soon learnt other things, especially working in the world of peace and conflict. Mm. I was very often the only women in meetings. Uh, I realize how, you know, it's quite male dominated, all of those areas of policies and politics in Australia, or at least where I find it to um, be less multicultural than it looks like yes. um, in a similar way to America uh, in, in that the various groups are confined to one another and not mixing, which is why a lot of the focus of what I do here is about trying to mix people from different backgrounds because mm. I think that's the value of multiculturalism. It's not enough to have a city where you have 20% from you know many different countries all living next to each other. They need to, to live with each other, if, mm. if you know what I mean. Like multiculturalism isn't 
a neighborhood where everybody's Greek, a neighborhood where everybody's Italian, a neighborhood where everybody's is Afghani. Multiculturalism is a workplace where the Greek, the Afghani, and the Italians are actually working together. Mm. Mm. You've said before that you, um, you know, before you came to the social outfit, you had turned 50, you were over the egos, the aeroplanes, and the grey suits. Were you looking for more colour in your life? Oh my gosh, you've done a, you've done a <laughs> lot of research. I'm like, yeah. um, I absolutely was. Yeah. And because in every job I've been, I've put so much of myself, mm. I actually had to resign from that job to have a pause and think about my next move. So when I left the Institute for Economics and Peace, I didn't know what was going to be next. Mm. But... As you said, I knew a few things. I knew I was sick of planes. I wanted to learn, get to know Sydney better. I was sick of men in grey suits and huge egos because that's what the corridors of Geneva and Paris and London and New York were for me in the diplomatic peace-building world. Um, I wanted to get my hands dirty. I wanted to finally work with the beneficiary of the work. You know, one thing is to be at the top level of a skyscraper moving millions of dollars, but never meeting the people that your work is supposed to support. I wanted to understand that and, 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 and dedicate my time to that. But I also wanted to carry on the lessons that I had learned along the mm. way. And, you know, one of the key lessons was empowering women with employment is the biggest bang for the buck. And Kofi Annan said this over and over and over. We know that when you provide women with employment, the benefits trickle down not only to their family, but to entire community. And that is one of the keys to improvements in society. And the other thing was, you know, 10 years of studying peace and the drivers of peace, how much social resilience is key. And seeing that even in Sydney, you know, you don't build social resilience unless you actually really get those groups of people to accept, know each other and care about each other. So those are the things that I wanted to bring into my next role. Um, and I didn't know what that next role was going to be. And I certainly didn't think it was going to be in fashion. <laughs> well, that's I before you started with the social outfit, did you ever think that fashion could be a, a tool for peace or social cohesion? Probably not. I, I just don't think I had thought much about fashion. Mm. Um, however, I knew the social outfit. I had been at the social outfit because my, my kids went to school at Newtown High School for the performing arts. Yeah, yeah. So I had stumbled upon the shop and I remember seeing on the window something that said, um, made for good, good to wear. And I was intrigued by what that meant. And I walked inside the shop and I asked some questions and I was fascinated by it. Um, and I bought many presents uh, for my family and friends overseas at the social outfit because I thought, how cool to give a gift that has a story. Yeah. And it's just another thing, but it's a thing that comes with, you know, purpose. Given your understanding though of, um you know, if, if you're going, to, you know, what you were saying before about multiculturalism and having um, the people truly integrate with each other rather than just being like living in their own cultural silos. Uh, did you ever think about fashion though as a sense of um, 
communion, like a sense of like if it's if it's a sense of representation and identity. And going back to your own story, even you know you were you felt locked out of a certain way, and you didn't look the same. Your mother didn't dress you the same. Did it, it never occur to you that um, fashion could hold that meaning and power before? I, I just don't think that I, you know, we were mostly thinking about, you know, war and famine and, and, and things <laughs> and, like that. Yeah, and so, so fashion does seem a know, little frivolous when you're dealing you know, with war and famine. But I think um, there was always that thought and understanding that creativity and working with your hands is a tool for people to come together, mm. is a tool for people to communicate even when they speak different languages and how powerful that can be and creating something beautiful, whether it's a sculpture or whether it's a garment. Mm. Actually, I just um, did an interview with Lucianne Tonti. Do you know Lucianne? Mm -hmm. She writes for The Guardian oh, about... Um, sustainable uh, fashion you should you, I should introduce you yeah. to because I'm sure you'd have a lot in common and we were talking about the art of dressmaking and how within my own family we had a dressmaker who would like made outfits for my grandmother my mother myself and how that passed through generations but she was a Greek lady I'm, I've got a Greek heritage and she grew up in France and mm -hmm. so her English was very limited, but she spoke French fluently and she spoke, she, instead of speaking Gringlish, she spoke like, I don't know, Grinch or something, you right, know, right, like right, some, right. some mix between Greek and French. Um, and so she would speak to my mum in Greek about, you know, like if I was trying, like getting something made, but then she would count all her measurements in French. Um, but it is that lovely thing of, of that what you're saying and just made me yeah. remember that, you know, working with your hands and having something that is quite physical, you can create something without the common language. That's right. Uh, so for the audience, obviously I do know a great deal about what you do, but can you give a synopsis of um, the social outfit and the premise of the organisation? Of course. So the social outfit is a fashion label with a difference. That's our slogan, that's what we say. What does a fashion label with a difference mean? Well, the social outfit was created with a very specific purpose of empowering refugee women in Sydney through training and employment. So fashion is the tool with which we do it. Mm. Um, what does it that mean? Again, um, everything the social outfit makes is made by refugee women, most of them on their first Australian jobs. So women come from many different countries. They have huge barriers to employment in Australia. The highest barriers actually are by this group. So only 20% of female humanitarian migrants in Australia are engaged in the workforce. Mm. And so the social outfit wants to change that, wants to provide these women with employment because with employment comes so much more your paycheck, which is important, but your independence, your confidence, your ability to pass something on to your kids, uh, you're making networks and friends, and you really start integrating in the country. Um, that's one side of what we do. All of the sewers are paid per hour, not per piece. We try to really change how fashion should be made in Australia and how the sewers should be treated. Mm -hmm. um, we constantly upskill them. Um, we now offer a lot of free training. So we 
We also find women that have arrived fairly recently. Um, maybe they have been sewing, but they have been sewing without electricity. And we upskill them on industrial machines and you know what it means to work in the industry in Australia. The other side, and then we can go more in depth in, in any of these elements. The other side of what we do is that we are keen in reducing landfill. Mm -hmm. So we work with the Australian fashion industry to repurpose their waste. Um, Everything we use, we use is new materials, but is donated to us by the fashion industry because it costs them money to store it. Mm. So it's essentially, it's their sampling fabrics, is fabrics that they've got printed, but then decided not to use anymore, is fabric like these um, sequins from Q that breaks, um, breaks sewing machines, um, and therefore they they donated about 400 meters of it. They didn't want it. Um, yes, we've we've broken a lot of needles on it, but it's uh, <laughs> it's become a super popular um, oh, product imagine. and it's really fun. Yes. Um, so we've saved about 15 tons of fabric from going into landfill to date um, right. with our work. So can you uh, tell me, Camilla, how you bring culturally the those kind of influences of the women that are uh, that other organization how do you bring that out through the clothing and oh so many different ways um for example this is our latest uh one of our latest what we call community prints it's mm. called faribas triangles what is that sorry uh, faribas triangles so faribas Faribas participated Faribas. in one of our um, art workshops okay um, this one was done out in granville at the granville community hub and we had a group of women and their children draw essentially and we guided that art making we taught them about pattern making and how that all works and the outcome were two different prints one is called um, Granville Heroes and it's based on drawings of the children of what a hero is for them and Fariba is the lady who made these beautiful triangles and we thought the color combination and the shape was great and so we put it in repeat and printed it in 100% silk crepe de chine and that's really representing her and her art in the clothes. What, where's she from and what, what's, how does it represent her? Giving them a voice and the space to be creative and the confidence that their creativity can lead to something that, you know, Sydney siders, you know, Sydney lawyers might want to purchase and, and, and wear. So it all sounds quite idyllic in terms of the community that you have built within the organisation. And I know that you've even described it as a family. But in families, we have lots of different characters. And you do have a lot of people from varying um, diverse backgrounds here. Do you ever experience conflict within the team? And if you do, what have your learnings done to help resolve those cultural differences um, between people? Not much conflict at all actually um, we do certainly work with a lot of women who have high levels of trauma um, and we have to offer a workplace that is supportive mm. that means that if a woman isn't 
fast or is distracted or isn't able to work one day, we have to accept it. Uh, we're a fashion label with a difference. We're actually not a business. We are a charity operating a social enterprise. Mm. What does that mean? The main difference is that we can be there to support those women because profit is not our bottom line. Um, so everything that we sell goes to pay those, those wages and we also fundraise to be able to pay what are the learning lessons you would like anybody to hear, whether it's a social outfit customer, donor, or just somebody of the general public? You, you obviously have great exposure to yeah. very critical situations. So, first of all, refugees are not the enemies. They're heroes. They're incredible people who have overcome massive obstacles and are still resilient and they are a resource to our country. So we should really empower them so they can become part, real integral part of the society because they have a lot to offer. Um, what else have I learned? Fashion is really difficult uh, for so in, in so many ways, but customers are out there wanting to buy fashion that empowers other women mm. um, so let's try and, and be real and actually do that um, in a in a real in, in a real way um, the other big lesson I've learned is that the work of the social outfit is really impactful it's really impact and and I know because I'm, I'm seeing it every day and the reason it's really impact is because we meet the women where they're at we know each one of the participants. We know them, we know the skills, their aspirations, their, their challenges, so we're able to understand how we need to support them. Mm. The reason so many organizations that are trying to do similar things to us fail is because they're starting to treat their clients, um, be they refugees or homeless people or whatever, as numbers. You mm. can't do that. Mm. So sometimes you need to sacrifice scale for quality. Yeah. And you can only really support people if you know who they are and what they need. Is that something that you've learned from here or from all your practices? It's something I've learned here. Yeah. And it's a big lesson that I wish I could be bring back to you where do. I and what I've done before. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's really interesting. Because you, think it it you, you lose that because you're, you're, you're at that scale level. You're, you're moving masses, but I think, and you can still do that, but you need to trickle down to the bottom where it's actually each and every individual matters. It's not about how many women you've trained, you know, and I can proudly say we've trained over 850 women here, but we know their names and we know where they're going and we know how to support them and that's what's making a difference. The fact and that 85% of the women that leave the social outfit are in ongoing employment is because we've been able to understand what they needed and where they wanted to go. If you just push someone into a job that they don't want, after two months they're going to be unemployed again. Mm. What of the women that you've, you look after and, and support and work with and um, commune with, what have they taught you personally? I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I can't even, they've, they've taught me about the power of resilience. They've taught me about not giving up. They've taught me about hope um, and, and just being able to smile at the sun coming out every, you know, in the morning and just and just carry on um, because some of those stories, which I am you know, not 
going to disclose yeah. and we never talk about because they're private stories for the women to tell if they ever want to. Yeah. But they are some of the hardest stories that I have ever heard. And, and the fact that they're here, they come, mm. you know, and they bring positivity to the days, maybe not every day, um, it's incredible and it's a lesson for everyone. Mm. You've um, said that uh, fashion can change lives. Um, how has the social outfit changed your personal style? Oh, well, it's, you know, I mean, just look at me. First yeah. of all, it's given me that freedom to express myself completely, to have fun with clothes, but also to know that I really have that choice of wearing things that are helping others. And, and, and that is so powerful and that makes you happy. When you put on something that you know has provided you know, important and fair employment to someone, how much better does that make you feel than, than wearing, you know, a T-shirt that you think probably has got blood on its hands? Mm. And again, to me, it's, it's not necessarily about where it, in the world it's been made. Sometimes we can, you can buy something that's made in Vietnam where the sewer has been paid a fairer wage than something that's been made in Australia. It's about knowing what that brand is doing and how it operates, no matter where in the world it's operating. Mm. It's very clear that you have a lot of fun with your wardrobe and that it is playful now. How does that correlate to the ideas that you have about peace and joy? Is it is it a, an own sense of peace in yourself that's coming out? I mean, obviously it's so inherently connected to the organisation, but is it is there something I, greater I mean, there I think, for you? And even for the women, yeah. if I don't want them to be there cutting grey and black. Mm. We want to be cutting fun, sparkly mixtures because that in itself uplifts you. And so when you have the freedom to wear colours and fun or flowers or whatever, if your favourite colour is pink, wearing pink, or if your favourite colour is green, wearing green, that makes you feel better. And, and, and we have to accept and acknowledge that it's part of, of who we are. Um, otherwise, fashion wouldn't have developed the way, the way it has. It's an important part of our day. Yes. Um, and we, we and see identity. ourselves and our identity, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in terms of what is expected of women, uh, the idea that we are supposed to wear something different all the time is something that bothers you, correct? Yes. Tell me how you've addressed that. So first of all, it's something that bothers me because I did travel a lot around the world. Yeah. Um, and even if it was grey suits, I re, you know, I was slapping around with these suitcases and then I was seeing my male counterparts, they were only changing their ties yeah. every day. You know, really, I'm like, why? And you felt that pressure. You felt, although I, I kept, you know, going through the same clothes, I was never someone to buy many clothes, but you did feel that, well, in the morning I'm wearing this, in the evening I have to wear something different, etc. So, um we, also, we wanted to address that and address the fact that I am aware that if you have to buy ethical and sustainable clothes, they cost more. Mm. However, and that might also have been related to my Italian background, good quality, expensive clothes, you can keep them for a long time. So let's try and change that paradigm of, oh, they're expensive and understand that if you get, you know, I was talking 
last year was, you know, wearing a pair of boots that I bought when I was at uni. Mm. Yeah, they were fairly expensive, but it's 30 years later and I still have them. Mm. Um, so it's a false economy, right? Yeah. Uh, apart from the, all the impact on the environment of just buying and throwing and, and, and all of that. So we want to empower women to feel that it's okay to wear the same clothes. Um, and therefore you should buy things that you really love, that you can wear a long time and that are quality clothes. So our campaign is called Wear the Change, which is a play on We Are the Change, Wear the Change. And it's a challenge that runs every year during Refugee Week, where we're asking women to go to work um, wearing the same one piece of ethical clothing for five days in a row. So you can choose a top like this, a pair of pants, and just style it in different ways to really start that conversation and, and change the dynamic and at the same time fundraise for the social outfit. That's yeah. how we raised $115,000. But I like to think that it's much more than that because it's starting that conversation debate. and practice. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's, but still having fun with it, right? That's right. And then yeah. taking photos of how you styled it and thinking about it and being really, you know, purposeful about actually this is a scarf, but I can wear it as a belt or, you know, this, there's so much we can, and, and makes people be more creative and having, going back to have fun with your clothes. And, yeah. you know, we had company teams. So we had people at Westpac, at Woolworths, um, in, an, in a number of different law firms participating mm. and finally having fun with their clothes and talking to colleagues at work about it. So yeah. I think it's, you know, it's it's starting to be a little bit of a small revolution in Australia. When is Refugee Week? It's uh, normally, it's always the third week of June. Okay. Okay, great. <laughs> we'll have to keep yes. it on the radar. What do you kind of dream about? You're, you're obviously an incredibly curious person that has a thirst for uh, knowledge and experiences. What what would you like to see as your future plans? Uh, it's too hard to think about my future plans when I'm so busy with this, but my plan for the social outfit, um, which is the main focus at the moment, is I would like this to become an example or what is possible in fashion. Mm. I mean, I'm Italian, but I look at the crisis of migrants in Europe, particularly in the Southern Europe, you know, from Greece to France to Italy, and thinking about how many clothes are manufactured and how much, you know, it's like, can, these be, can we inspire this to become the way clothes are made in, in many, in many in other countries? Forward, That's yeah. what I would like to do. I would like to be an ambassador for that. Um, you know, the UN is starting to look at um, sustainable fashion they've created some new actually one of my uh, former colleagues is involved in that initiative I thought maybe I should you know just start talking about what the social outfit does it is a very small local realities but it should become an example of how we can do things differently mm. that's that's my dream at the moment and your style has always had your thread of independence and curiosity weaved right through it, uh, but it has evolved. It is playful and more colourful now as we've established. How do you think you'd like to see yourself as an 80-year-old woman? Oh, even more colourful. Um, I don't. I don't want to inherit my mum's jewellery. Um, so I leaving the pearls love, behind. <laughs> I love colourful, fun things, and I think 
especially as you as you get older, you need to incorporate more color in your wardrobe. It's just it just suits older people, um, and and just be, you know, I think as we age we become so much more confident. Um, and so we have the freedom um, and the strength to do that, to, do, to wear things that are different. Mm. Uh, Camilla, thank you so much for uh, inviting me here today and for telling me your style story <laughs> and sharing it with the audience. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Camilla may have grown up seeing herself as an outsider, but it's been her outward-looking attitude and reach that makes her style and her story so intriguing. Whether it be the pride in her mother's Fruit of the Loom t-shirts, her postnatal peroxide roots, or simply saying no to a grey suit, Camilla's style has always been fiercely independent and has colourfully evolved to match her explorative outlook. Not one to conform in either fashion or form, she has made a career out of forging pathways between social circles. And now, sitting at the helm of the social outfit, Camilla ensures her story continues to out the influence of social insiders while making way to let the outsiders in. Seeing difference as a strength may be the mantra to Camilla's style, but it's her drive to deliver difference for the greater good that makes her story truly unique.